إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد so today continuing with Kitab al-Tawheed, we're on to the section regarding Bab min al-shirki an-nadhar li-ghayrillah An-nadharu li-ghayrillah From shirk is to make the vowing for other than the sake of Allah From the actions of shirk are to make the vows and the oaths to other than the sake of Allah this particular chapter now, it is talking about these vows that people they used to make and they still make. These vows and oaths that a person he takes. And it is known that some people they used to and maybe still do something which is known and it is widespread that they make their vows and their oaths to the jinn. It may be the occasion or it may be the situation that they are afraid of the jinn. So they vow to the jinn. Or that they may make vows to the ones they call the awliya of Allah. So they make vows and oaths in their names. Or to the other people who are deceased in their graves. They may go and make vows and oaths in the names of of the deceased in their graves. And that's why the graves, it is one of the greatest trials for the people where the shirk it can occur. When shirk it first began, it began with the issue of the graves. At the time of Nuh alayhi salam, the graves and the picture making, these are the affairs that the scholars have said, is where shirk it began from, because the shaitan, he whispered to those people to go to the graveyards, and they would sit there for a long time, for lengthy periods, and then eventually he told them to make pictures and statues and figurines of them, so the graves and picture making are from the sources of shirk. So here some people, they make these vows, they may make a vow, for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to these deities, to these deceased people, to the jinn, to various other affairs. When making a vow, there are different types of vows. A person may make a vow for the sake of Allah, making a vow in the name of Allah, that's one type. Or a person may make a vow in the name of other than Allah. He may make a vow in someone else's name, not in the name of Allah. So there are two categories of vowing. A vow that is made in the name of Allah, and a vow that is made in the name of someone else besides Allah. The vow which is made in the name of Allah, it can also be two types. A vow that is made in the name of Allah, which is some type of obedience, 
And the second type, a vow that is made in the name of Allah that is actually a sin. So the vow that is made in the name of Allah could be two types. It could be a vow in the name of Allah that is a particular type of obedience. You vow that you will do a particular obedience. Or you may make a vow in the name of Allah, but it's actually something which is disobedience. As for the other type that we said, the vow that is made in other than the name of Allah, then that similarly, it could be that you vow in other than the name of Allah to do a particular act of obedience, or you may vow in the name of other than Allah to do an act of sinning. So you have the two types, the vow in the name of Allah and the vow in other than the name of Allah. Then both of those have two subcategories. Either the vow is obedience to Allah or the vow is disobedience to Allah. So how many categories altogether? Two, but then they have two subcategories each. So altogether, four categories altogether. Four types altogether. Either it is a vow that you make in the name of Allah and it is obedience. That is one. Or it is a vow that you make in the name of Allah, but disobedience. That's two. Or it's a vow in other than the name of Allah and obedience though. That's three. Or it is a vow in other than the name of Allah and disobedience. That's the fourth. So what is the ruling on every one of those types of vows? As for the ones that are made for other than the name of Allah, in other than the name of Allah, both of those, whether it is that you vow to do some obedience or you vow to do disobedience, the very fact that you vowed in other than the name of Allah makes it shirk. So those two categories are instantly impermissible. Because you have vowed in the name of other than Allah. So whether it is obedience or disobedience, they are both shirk and impermissible. So therefore it is not permissible to carry out those vows that you've made if they were made in the name of other than Allah. As for the vow that is made in the name of Allah, then as we said, it's two types. Either you vow to do some obedience in the name of Allah or you vow to do some disobedience in the name of Allah. If you vow to do some obedience in the name of Allah for the sake of Allah, then it is obligatory to fulfill that vow. If you make that vow, then it is obligatory to fulfill that vow. If however, you make the vow in the name of Allah, and it is a vow of disobedience, then what is the ruling? You make the vow in the name of Allah, but it's something that you vow to do that is actually not correct, it's a disobedience. But you vowed in the name of Allah. So now what do you do? It is impermissible to fulfill that vow because it is disobedience. You cannot fulfill a vow of disobedience. So that vow is not to be fulfilled. What are the types of vows of obedience? For example, somebody vows that they are going to fast 10 days next month. You make a vow that you are going to fast 
10 days next month. That is a vow of obedience or not? It's a vow of obedience. And if you make that vow for the sake of Allah, in the name of Allah, then you must fulfill that vow. Next month then, you must fast 10 days after that next month. You made a vow of obedience to Allah. Or you make a vow of obedience to Allah that you are going to go and do i'tikaf for a week. Now, that's again an act of obedience. You must then go and fulfill that vow and do what you vowed. That's why the ruling regarding vows is that they are actually makruh. It is not something suitable for a person to make vows. Even vows of obedience. That you vow you will fast 10 days next month. You vow you will go and do i'tikaf for a week in Al-Masjid al-Nabawi when you go to Umrah. To make these types of vows is not something recommended. It is makruh to make these vows. Even the ones like those ones, vows of obedience in the name of Allah, it's makruh to make them. Why? There's that, but even before that. Even before that. A vow, what is the definition of a vow? The definition of a vow is that you are now making something obligatory upon yourself that the Qur'an and Sunnah has not made obligatory upon you. If you vow that I vow I'm going to fast 10 days next month. Is it an obligation next month to have to fast 10 days? It's not Ramadan. So is there an obligation upon anyone as an obligation that you must fast 10 days next month? There isn't. Even if you fast no days next month, you wouldn't be a sinner. It would be suitable and good to fast some of the days of the month in accordance to the Sunnah. But if you didn't fast any days, there's no sin. There certainly is not any obligation to have to fast 10 days next month, as an example. So if you take that vow now, you've made it obligatory upon yourself, something that the Qur'an and the Sunnah did not make obligatory upon you. You vow that you are going to go and do i'tikaf for a week in Al-Masjid al-Nabawi when you go to Umrah. When you go to Umrah, is it even a condition to have to visit Medina? Not even a condition. You can go to Mecca, do your Umrah, come straight home. You vow that when you go to Umrah, you're going to go to Medina and stay a week i'tikaf in the masjid. You've now made something obligatory upon yourself, which is not obligatory in the legislation. So vowing, it is not something recommended. Because as the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ said, لا تنظروا فإن النظر لا يأتي بخير. Do not make vows because vowing does not come with goodness. وَإِنَّمَا يُسْتَخْرَجُ بِهِ مِنَ الْبَخِيلَ Vowing is only something which extracts from the miserly person. You extract something from the miserly person. Miserly person in terms of his worship, he won't fast. So then you vow, he vows to fast next month 10 days. He now makes it obligatory upon himself to extract, to squeeze out 10 days of fasting from himself, which he wouldn't do otherwise. He wouldn't do it otherwise, but now he's obligated, he's made the vow, he can't break it. So it's a type of activity which is not suitable. You should be doing the worship anyway. You should be doing the worship and the obedience to Allah without having to put yourself in a situation where you are making obligatory upon yourself that which the Qur'an and the Sunnah has not made obligatory upon you. So vowing, as the Prophet ﷺ says, it's a way of making or extracting from the bakhil, from the miserly one. The one who will not do any worship otherwise, 
But then he says, and because vows are often linked to something. So then he says that if I pass in my exam next week, oh Allah, then I vow I will fast 10 days next month. So you are making your vows in a miserly manner. That you wouldn't fast otherwise, but you are making dua, if I pass, then I vow I will fast 10 days. This is miserliness from a person. So that's why it's mentioned that these vows in of themselves initially are not something which are recommended for a person to do. It's mentioned in the Quran, Allah says, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants ease for you and does not want difficulty for you. Allah wants ease for you in your religion, not difficulty. So now when you vow to do some worship which isn't obligatory and therefore make it obligatory on yourself, you're making things difficult for yourself where it has not been made difficult for you in the sharia. So for these various reasons, it is not correct to make these vows. Or it is not recommended to make the vows. However, somebody may say, if it is not recommended to make the vows, why does it say in the Qur'an, a praise for the people who fulfill their vows? There is praise for the people who fulfill their vows in the Qur'an. يُوفُونَ بِالنَّذَرِ وَيَخَافُونَ يَوْمًا كَانَ شَرُّهُ مُسْتَطِيرًا They fulfill their vows. This is a praise from Allah to those people who have vowed that they fulfill their vows. So how can it be that we're saying the ruling upon vowing is that it's makruh, but at the same time in the Qur'an it is saying praiseworthiness for the ones who fulfill their vows. No, well, if you made a vow of obedience, you have to fulfill it. But we said to make the vow in the first place isn't something recommended in the sunnah. So how is it praiseworthy to fulfill the vow? But how do you combine between the two? It's makruh to make the vow. Because there's two parts here. One part is, or there's two issues. One issue is the issue of making a vow. The other issue is the issue of fulfilling the vow. To make the vow in the first place isn't recommended. But if you've done it, then it's praiseworthy that you do fulfill it. You have to then. If you don't fulfill a vow of obedience, you're sinning. So if you've ended up making the vow, then it is praiseworthy that you fulfill that vow. If you don't, then it will be dispraiseworthy. You'll be a sinner. If you've made a vow of obedience to Allah... You've made the vow now, you're going to fast 10 days, then you need to fulfill it. And it's praiseworthy you then fulfill it. But it wasn't suitable in the first place to have made it though. So the initial issue of making the vow is one thing, fulfilling it is another. Once you've made the vow of obedience, then to fulfill it is praiseworthy. If you don't fulfill it, it will be a sin. Then the first ayah that is mentioned here, وَمَا أَنْفَقْتُمْ مِن نَفَقَةٍ أَوْ نَذَرْتُمْ مِن نَذْرٍ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ يَعْلَمُ that whatever you spend from your wealth and whatever you vow, then indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of all of that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of what you spend and is aware of what you vow. What vow you make, what oaths you take. 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of those vows, is aware of those oaths, is aware of what you spend in charity. Allah is aware of what is in the hearts of the men. Allah is the knowledgeable of all of the affairs. So this first ayah, it mentions to you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of the vows, and therefore if you made a vow and you've taken an oath, then it is an obligation upon you to fulfill it, if it is an oath and a, a vow of obedience. If you've taken an oath or a vow of obedience, then you must fulfill that oath or vow of obedience. So this ayah is an encouragement upon that. It's an encouragement to fulfill the vows if you've made the vows. Because indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of all of that. Allah is aware if you've made a vow, you made an oath, then upon you is to complete and to fulfill that vow if it is a vow of obedience to Allah made in the name of Allah. Then, وفي الصحيح عن عائشة رضي الله عنها أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال Then, it is mentioned in this authentic hadith of Aisha رضي الله عنها Aisha, the mother of the believers, the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq رضي الله عنها She mentions in this particular hadith that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said من نظر أن يطيع الله فَلْيُطِعْهُ وَمَنْ نَظَرَ أَنْ يَعْصِيَ اللَّهِ فَلَا يَعْصِهِ That whomsoever vows to obey Allah, then let him obey Allah. Whomsoever vows to obey Allah in the obedience of Allah, then he must fulfill that and obey Allah. And whomsoever vows to disobey Allah, then let him not disobey Allah. So if you make a vow of disobedience, then you cannot fulfill that vow of disobedience. But if you make a vow of obedience, then you fulfill the vow of obedience. So this is the hadith narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. Aisha radiallahu anha, who was from the most knowledgeable of the companions, from the most knowledgeable of the companions, known as a faqiha, from the fuqaha of the companions. Such was her great knowledge, that other senior companions used to come and ask her about issues of the religion. So Aisha radiallahu anha, upon this level and status of knowledge, she narrates this hadith regarding the vowing. So the hadith, it makes it very clear. That somebody who makes a vow of obedience, then that is an act of worship. The vow of obedience is an act of worship, and it must be done for the sake of Allah therefore. So vowing for other than the sake of Allah is not permissible. Vowing in other than the name of Allah is not permissible. This is an act of obedience. Whoever vows to obey Allah, then he must obey Allah. And whomsoever vows to disobey, then let him not disobey. So the vowing of obedience, like you vow to fast, or you vow to do hajj, or you vow to do umrah, or to give some charity, or to do itikaf, or other than that, these are all vows of obedience. If you make a vow, you're going to do something like that, then you must fulfill that vow. So this indicates that it's an act of worship. It is an act of obedience, an act of worship to fulfill the vow that you have made. But whomsoever makes a vow to disobey Allah, makes a vow to disobey Allah, 
For example, he makes a vow to that he is going to break off the ties of kinship, for example. He vows he will never speak to certain relatives of his family again. That type of vow is a vow of disobedience. To break off the relations, to break off the ties of kinship, that is something which is commanded for us to do, not to break off and to abandon. So the one who makes a vow to break off the ties of kinship, for example, has made a vow of disobedience. So that type of vow, it is something which is impermissible to fulfill. You can't then say now, I've made the vow, I'm stuck, I have to break off my relations with my family and I can't speak to them again. That is incorrect. You cannot fulfill the vow of disobedience. So in that instance, in that situation, it would not be permissible to fulfill this vow because this is a vow of disobedience. Whether you make a vow that you're not going to pray, that's a vow of disobedience, leaving off an obligation. Or you make a vow you're going to drink alcohol, a vow of disobedience, haram to do so. So in all of these instances, it is impermissible to carry out that vow that you've made, even if you made a vow. It is impermissible to fulfill that vow and say, well, I'm stuck now, I have to do it. Incorrect, you do not do it. It is impermissible to fulfill a vow of disobedience. As for the vow that is made, these are all vows made for Allah, made in the name of Allah. As for if a vow is made in other than the name of Allah, then in that case it's shirk anyway. Whether you make a vow of obedience or not, even if you make a vow of obedience, but to other than Allah, it's shirk in the first place. So that you cannot fulfill, that is not correct, that vow is impermissible to make. The issue that remains is, if a person makes a vow of disobedience, you vow that you are going to commit some sin, you vow that you are going to drink alcohol or something, then obviously you realize this is a vow of disobedience and you cannot fulfill that vow. So you have to break that vow, you can't do it. But now, is there a sin upon you? Is there some expiation upon you for having broken the vow then? Do you have to now do some expiation? Meaning, do you have to do some other worship to make up for the fact that you've broken a vow now? Even though you had no choice because you made a vow of sinning and you can't fulfill that vow. But is there an expiation upon you now for having made a vow and then having broken that vow? It is something that is differed about amongst the scholars. اختلفوا هل تجب عليه كفارة كفارة يمين أو لا تجب من العلماء من رأى أنه تجب عليه كفارة يمين كفارة يمين بدل النظر ومنهم من يرى أنه لا يجب عليه كفارة يمين نظرا لأن نظر المعصية غير منعقد أصلا فليس فيه كفارة يمين some scholars, they say that there is an expiation that you must do then. You must do an expiation to make up for this vow that you've broken. Other scholars say there is no expiation. And the reason being, they say, because when you make a vow of disobedience, the vow is not a valid vow in the first place. You can't vow to drink alcohol. It's haram to drink alcohol. You can't vow to not pray. It's impermissible for you not to pray. You have to pray. It's an obligation. So they say that type of vow, it's not 
something which is legitimate in the first place. It's not a legitimate vow in the first place. It doesn't actually hold in the first place. That vow is an incorrect statement of yours from the very beginning. So the fact that you don't do it then, that's all you do. You just don't do that vow. There's nothing upon you. It's an incorrect vow in the first place. But other scholars, they say, no, you've made a vow. You have made a vow. Even though it's a vow of disobedience. So now if you break that vow, which you have to because you can't fulfill disobedience, then upon you is to make up for that with an expiation. And that's the difference between the scholars regarding the vow and whether it is upon a person to have to make it up or not. If they then have to break that vow due to the sin that is within it. There are some other issues linked to this vowing which will come later on as well. It's when a person... He, for example, vows in the name of his mother or his father or upon other things like that. You hear the people saying, he swears on his mother's life. He swears on his father's life. He swears on his children's lives. You hear people saying that kind of thing. He swears by the Kaaba. All of these types of things are impermissible. These statements are impermissible. To make this type of statement, he swears on his mother's life, he swears by the Kaaba, he swears on his father's grave. All of these things that the people, they say on these statements that you hear, they are haram statements for a Muslim to make. You do not swear by your mother or your father, you do not make vows in your name of your mother or your father or the Kaaba. Any oath, any vow that is taken is taken in the name of Allah. You do not say in the name of my mother, in the name of my father, in the name of the children, in the name of such and such, in the name of the Kaaba even. Rather it is the vowing or the oaths, the uh, oaths they are taken in the name of Allah alone. So it is a type of shirk when a person says he swears on his mother's life that he's telling the truth or, or that he did such and such. Swearing on your mother's life or swearing on the Kaaba, these types of things are impermissible. So you should be aware of that and not use this type of speech and not use these types of statements when you are talking or you are speaking. And we'll come to that in more detail later on in another chapter as well. Moving on to the next chapter. Babun min al-shirki al-isti'adatu bighayrillah. The chapter regarding now that it is from shirk to seek protection in other than Allah. To ask others besides Allah for guardianship, for safety, for protection. Why is this shirk? Because your trust and your dependence should be purely in Allah. Not that you rely upon other people or you ask others for protection and aid and assistance. You go to the awliya as they claim. You go to the graves of the prophets and you make dua to them to help you and protect you. Help and protection and aid. Then all of these affairs seeking refuge, it is in Allah alone. You put your trust and your dependence in Allah alone, it is not to be placed in others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what the shaykh is going to mention here now, this issue of al-isti'adha, al-isti'adha, seeking protection or seeking refuge. When you say, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم, I seek refuge and protection in Allah from the shaytan. أعوذ بالله, you say, you seek refuge and protection in Allah from the shaitan. Not that you seek refuge and protection in others, ask others to protect you and give you refuge. So this is an act of worship which is only for Allah too. An example that the shaykh mentions here in this chapter, قول الله تعالى 
وأنه كان رجال من الجن من الإنس يعوذون برجال من الجن فزادوهم رهقا that there were a group of men from the humans and they used to seek protection in a group of jinn they used to ask the jinn to protect them and to guard them so the jinn they ended up becoming even more frightening to the men the men became even more fearful of the jinn thinking the jinn are superior and have power and the men were seeking protection in the jinn this story or this ayah rather this ayah relates to what used to occur in jahiliyyah in jahiliyyah when the people used to travel and they used to come across the valleys and the mountains and they used to come across these types of areas where they knew that the jinn they live and they used to fear that the jinn may cause them some harm as they pass through this particular valley or this particular deserted area they feared that the jinn may cause them some harm so they used to call out to the leader of the jinn they used to call out to the leader of the jinn in that particular valley or that deserted area and they used to ask the leader of the jinn to give them protection from the remainder of the jinn the other jinn the commoners etc from the jinn in that valley they used to call out to the leader of the jinn give us protection and give us safety from the rest of the jinn to pass through so that's what this ayah means that the men they used to seek their refuge in the jinn they used to ask the leaders of the jinn they used to call out to them protect us and give us safe passage keep us safe from the rest of the jinn and your people so they used to ask for their refuge and their protection and their safety in the leaders of the jinn themselves they used to ask them for it rather than putting their trust and their dependence and making their dua to allah they would be making it to these leaders of the jinn then the ayah says fazaduhum rahaqa that the jinn there are different tafsir for this ayah but one of them is that as a consequence of that the jinn then realized just how afraid the humans are of them the jinn then realized just how afraid the humans are of them and so as a consequence the jinn they exploited that superiority that they discovered they have over the humans that the humans are afraid of them and the humans have fear of them so fazaduhum rahaqa that the jinn increased the humans in their fear the jinn then exploited the opportunity and put themselves in a way in a position to elevate themselves in a way whereby the humans were even more afraid so the humans would come and they would make their supplication to the leaders of the jinn and ask them for protection and aid and safety to be able to get through and the jinn realized just how afraid they are these humans of them so the humans ended up becoming even more and more and more afraid of the jinn when they carried on doing these activities in jahiliyyah seeking protection in the jinn so that is what this ayah is talking about here هذه من جملة الانتقادات التي انتقدها الجن الذين استمعوا للقرآن وآمنوا به انتقدوها على قومهم من الجن كما في قوله تعالى في أول سورة قل أوحي إلي أنه استمع نفر من الجن فقالوا إنا سمعنا قرآنا عجبا There are various ayat in the Quran that talk about the jinn 
And it talks about how some of the jinn, they became Muslims when they heard the ayat of the Qur'an. So we know that the jinn, they are another race, another creation of Allah, made from the smokeless fire. As it is mentioned in the hadith of Sahih Muslim, that the angels were created from light, and the jinn were created from a smokeless fire, and the humans were created from that which has been described to you, i.e. from the clay. So the jinn are another creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they live upon this earth. They live upon this earth as we the humans live upon it. And they are the same as us. There are Muslims from the jinn. There are disbelievers from the jinn. There are righteous people from the jinn. There are disobedient people from the jinn. There are people of sunnah from the jinn. There are people of bid'ah from the jinn. All of those things exist in the jinn just as they exist in the humans. So these jinn are mentioned in various parts of the Qur'an. Iman in the jinn is something that is an obligation. A person must have iman that the jinn exist. Why? Because if you do not have iman that the jinn exist, you are denying the ayat of the Qur'an. You are denying the ayat of the Qur'an if you don't believe that the jinn exist. Because Allah tells us in the Qur'an they exist. So if you say they don't or you don't believe it, then it's like you're saying you don't believe these ayat in the Qur'an. So that is impermissible. So a person has iman in the jinn that they are a creation from the creations of Allah. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, عَالَمٌ مِنْ عَالَمَ الْغَيْبِ The jinn are a creation from the creations of the unseen. We don't typically see the jinn. Sometimes it could occur, but generally speaking, we don't see the jinn. They are from the unseen to us. يَعِيشُونَ مَعَنَا فِي هَذِي الْأَرْضِ The Shaykh says they live with us here on this earth. وَهُمْ مُكَلَّفُونَ And they have also been given these responsibilities to practice Islam, to be upon the sunnah, same as us. They've been given those responsibilities. مَأْمُرُونَ بِطَاعَةِ اللَّهِ So they are commanded to worship Allah, just as we are commanded to worship Allah. مَنْهِيُّونَ عَنْ مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ They are prohibited from disobeying Allah, just as we are prohibited from disobeying Allah. لَكِنَّنَا لَا نَرَاهُمْ However, we cannot see them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an, إِنَّهُ يَرَاكُمْ Indeed, He sees you, i.e. the Iblis, هُوَ وَقَبِيلُهُ Him and His people, Him and His people, the jinn, they see you, مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا تَرَوْنَهُمْ They see you from where you cannot see them. They can see you, but you cannot see them. So this is mentioned in the Qur'an. So they see us and we cannot see them. And it is also mentioned about the jinn, that they can take different appearances. The jinn can take different appearances. So they can take the appearance of a snake. And that may be a jinn, who makes himself into the appearance of a snake. Or they can take the appearance of other animals. A jinn may take the appearance of other animals. And it's even possible that they may take the form of a human. They may even take the form of a human. So as Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, وَقَدْ يَتَسَوَّرُونَ بِصُوَرٍ مُتَشَكَّلَةٍ مُتَشَكَّلَةٍ يَتَسَوَّرُونَ بِصُوَرٍ حَيَّاتٍ وَبِصُوَرٍ حَيَوَنَاتٍ وَبِصُوَرٍ آدْمِيِّينَ so they could take the form of snakes or the form of other animals or the form of humans. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the jinn the ability to be able to do that. So they are a creation that has been made from the fire. As for humans, they were made from clay. And that is why Iblis, when Iblis was commanded to bow down to the angels, uh, to bow down to Adam alayhi salam rather, and the angels, they all bowed down, but Iblis, he refused to bow down. What was one of the reasonings that Iblis gave? What was the reasoning that Iblis gave that he wasn't going to bow down? He said, خَلَقْتَنِي مِن نَّارٍ وَخَلَقْتَهُ مِن طِينٍ You've created me from fire, the jinn, a smokeless fire. And you've created him, Adam salam, a human from clay. So he was saying, why should I prostrate to him? I am created from fire. He's created from the soil, clay. As if to say that Iblis, the jinn, they are superior. He is superior to Adam salam. That's what he was suggesting. I am made from fire, he's made from clay, why should I bow to him? And the reality is that this example that the Iblis gave, the example is actually incorrect and false. As some of the scholars of tafsir have mentioned. Because in reality, fire is not superior to clay. In reality, fire is not superior to clay. Because if you have a fire that is burning, and you throw a bucket of soil over it, what occurs to the fire? It goes out. But if you have a bucket of soil you put down, and you put the fire on top of it, at the end of it, when the fire finishes, what's still left underneath? The soil is still there. So soil can overcome fire, but fire does not overcome the soil. So the scholars, they say, the example Iblis was giving was wrong in the first place. Saying, I'm made from fire, he's made from clay, I'm superior. The reality is clay is superior to fire in that context. Clay can overcome fire, turn it out. Fire cannot destroy soil. It cannot burn out soil. Soil will still be there, it will remain. So this example was wrong in the first place. It was a false analogy, a false example that Iblis used. And as a consequence thereafter, uh, the story is well known regarding the misguidance of Iblis and how he will misguide the people and he will come to them from the right and from the left and from in front and from behind and he will attempt to whisper that to them and to misguide them up until the day of judgment. Here an important point to mention as well, Sheikh Al-Fawzan says there are some people nowadays, these intellectuals, these academics, these people who think that they are too clever. And they are not, because they have not studied the religion of Islam, they have not studied the evidences, they have not studied the proofs, but instead because they've achieved maybe their academic status, their academic chair, their status in terms of the academic world, they think they're very intellectual. And some of those types of people, the philosophers and these intellectuals from the Muslims, they reject the existence of the jinn. They claim to be upon Islam and Muslims, but they reject the existence of the jinn. They say it's illogical, scientifically, what are you talking about? How can there be these spirits living amongst us, these jinn living amongst us? So they reject it because their minds and their intellects and their science does not prove it for them. So these types of people, the sheikh says, you have to be careful of them. 
Some of them, they might be so-called scholars. And this is something Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned several hundred years ago. That even at that time, there were these intellectuals coming along making claims that there cannot be any jinn. How can there be jinn? Scientifically, our minds do not understand the existence of jinn. But that is false. We know in reality the jinn, they exist. We know in the Quran, Allah has told us about that. We know that the jinn, they can influence people. They can overcome people. Those types of things, they occur. They can mix in with the people and overcome the people and possess the people and those types of things can occur. That is real and this is something which is in existence in reality. So here where it says that these people, the humans, they used to seek their protection in those jinn. So what happened? The jinn, زَادُوهُمْ rahaqa. That the jinn ended up making the humans become even more fearful. Because the jinn then realized how scared the humans are of them. Coming to them and asking them for protection and asking them to be safe from them. They knew how fearful the humans were of them. So they caused the jinn to become even, uh, they caused the humans to become even more fearful of them. After that, we have the hadith of Khawlat bint Hakim. Qalat, Sami'atu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul, Man nazala manzilan faqal, A'udhu bi kalimati Allahi attamat min sharri ma khalaq, Lam yadurrahu shay'un hatta yarhala min manzilihi thalik. That whomsoever he descends upon a particular place, you go to a particular place, maybe a new place, you haven't been there before, maybe some deserted place. You go to some place, and you don't know this place, maybe it's a new place, maybe it's a deserted place. So when you get there, you make dua to Allah for protection. So you make the dua, I seek refuge in the perfect words of Allah, from the evil that He has created, from the evil that may be here, scorpion, snake, whatever it may be. You seek refuge in Allah to protect you from those things. Then this hadith in Muslim says, nothing will harm that person until, all the way up until he leaves. He can remain in that place then and nothing will harm him all the way up until he leaves. So, this is the dua that is mentioned from Khawlat bint Hakim in this hadith. This now gives you the alternative to what you are supposed to do as opposed to what they used to do in Jahiliyyah. In Jahiliyyah, they would seek the jinn to help them. They would ask the jinn to protect them. Here, this hadith is telling us what you're actually supposed to do. You're supposed to make dua to Allah to give you the protection. Seek refuge in the perfect words of Allah, the complete words of Allah, to protect you from the evil that may be in that place, whatever it may be, a scorpion, a snake, something else to protect you from the evil of that place until you leave that place. And this is what is mentioned, that no evil will harm you then until you leave that place. You will be safe in that place. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentioned that whenever he used to go traveling, he would always make this dua when they camped up for the night. When he was traveling and they were on their journeys, whenever they camped up for the night, he would always make this dua. He says on one occasion, one night, I forgot to make the dua. We were traveling somewhere, we camped up for the night, and I forgot to make the dua he mentions. He says, that one night, that one night when I forgot to make the dua, when we camped up in this deserted place, wherever it was, that night I was bitten by a scorpion. 
He says, that was the night when the scorpion bit me. So no doubt these du'as, they have an impact. A person puts his trust into Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, puts his dependence, his reliance in Allah, makes the du'a to Allah to protect him, and does not have his dependence and his trust in others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Here though, one point to mention regarding this narration is, why does it say, I seek refuge in the perfect and complete words of Allah? What is that a proof for? That's a proof that the Qur'an is not created. Because if you seek refuge and help and protection from something created, that would become an act of shirk. Depending on the circumstances, we'll explain that more next time as well. But that would not be correct. So seeking refuge in something created wouldn't be correct. So when it says here, I seek refuge in the perfect and complete words of Allah, that must mean that the Qur'an is not created. And that is the belief of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The Qur'an is not created. It is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, an attribute of Allah. It is not created. The Qur'an, it is not to be said that it is created. So that hadith is a proof of that also. And it tells you what a person should do, that you put your trust in Allah, you make the dua that Allah protects you in that place. And you don't ask the jinn or make dua to the righteous people in their graves or the deceased or the prophets or the messengers or the awliya of Allah or the peer as they say. You make your trust and your dependence and your reliance purely on Allah. You make your dua to Allah to help you, to protect you, to guard you. Your supplication is purely to Allah, not to these other items, people, deceased, whoever it might be. Because when the humans were making their dua to the jinn, the only thing which happened was the jinn realized how scared the humans are and made the humans even more scared of them. So now the humans are even in a worse position than they were first. Instead, they should put their trust in Allah, make the dua to Allah, not to the jinn, fearing the jinn. So that is the chapter regarding the seeking of protection and aid. And we'll continue next week with the next chapter regarding seeking assistance and aid, which is very similar to this chapter. And we'll mention some of the uh, occasions when you are allowed to ask other people for help and assistance, of course. When is that allowed? How is that allowed? And how is that different to what we're talking about now regarding shirk? Inshallah ta'ala will explain that from the next session next week uh, at approximately 8 p.m. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.